Hello and welcome to Grow Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Carey. We're here in the Senate Chamber at the Old Capitol Museum tonight to talk about film, the last century of film in the public sphere. So I'm so glad you could be here to join us. Here to walk us through the past century's evolution in the art of filmmaking, obviously in rather broad strokes, and help us understand what's meant when we talk about the public sphere, are two guests from the University of Iowa's Department of Cinema and Comparative Literature. Next to me is Professor and Head of Film Studies, Steve Hunger. Thanks for being here, Steve. And next to him is Assistant Professor Steve Cho. Hey, Steve. Thank you for being here. So, moving pictures or films of one sort or another have been with us for more than a century. Um, for many of us, films are an essential part of our own personal stories, and we relate important moments in our lives to films we've seen. And um, obviously, the influence of filmmaking on cultural discourse can hardly be denied. So, I think I'm going to turn first to Steve and ask you, Steve Unger, that is, and ask you if you could give us some context for the development of film and filmmaking over these last hundred years. What were the early efforts like, and was it always a sure thing that films would be a hit with the public? Well, the prime feature of early cinema is the novelty of the illusion of movement. How can you generate movement on screen? And when people saw first films, which were often minimally moving, they were people walking along city streets, or a famous one, the train coming into a station in southern France, or of roof rooftops in a Berlin neighborhood. These were projected larger than life. And one story is in 1895, when the train entering the station in southern France was shown at a cafe in Paris. People recoiled because they felt the train was going to come off the screen. After, this, after the screening, they went behind to see if there was a hole and that there had been a train behind. So it was the novelty. And it was also the scale of these images that were larger than life. So the novelty and the notion of a cinema of attractions drew interest. Cinema was almost magic. People were not accustomed to this. So novelty is the first way in which a public was engaged. But very soon, the recording of movement moved toward reportage, the notion of photojournalism, where filming movement in the streets could be used to inform people of all kinds of events, political events, accidents, everyday events. And people went to be both entertained and inform. At a certain point, there were other kinds of uses for this new technology, such as taking people, so to speak, to other parts of the world they had never seen. These could be on the outskirts of cities, they could be in Alaska, they could be in Asia. So it was, a, it was an extension of the illustrated travelogue journal that worked. At a certain point, the ability to tell stories through moving pictures became more and more profitable. And it seems as though the fiction film, the storytelling capability of this technology dominated the kinds of films that were originally a case to record something out in the real world. <clears throat> so where people generally go to the movies, film scholars will talk about fiction film or documentary film, we'll talk about what film is. I think the kind of interest I want to follow up with you is what film can do. Film can entertain, film can instruct, and for my interest, 
film can make people think and through thought change the way they live in the world. In some instances where there was censorship related to these kinds of phenomena, film became a subversive activity. It became an expression of resistance to injustices. And so this is a public sphere in which film can have an impact. As technology has advanced and making films became easier through the use of portable recording equipment, both sound and visual, more and more people could make films through <coughs> video and now digital arts. Almost anyone can attempt to make what we would call a film or a video. And this ability of film to engage contemporary life is what I see as the essence of what interests me in saying film is more than entertainment. I think of Gone with the Wind as an American epic, or the silent version of Abel Gonsa's Napoleon, which becomes a reference for people to identify from one generation to another. And that's, for me, a range of film and public spheres. Yeah, well, you mentioned Napoleon. It's a wonderful four hour long film from what, the 1920s, I think? 1927 or 8, and using three screens. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. And um, I, you know, thinking about that, and then these little short films, videos that people are making these days. What is it, do you think? You've already talked about the magic of, um, of film and how it, how it impressed people, certainly in those early days, but all of us now have most of us um, in this room anyway will have some version of it, some kind of equipment that will take it, still photographs or uh, moving pictures. We can make little videos on our phones now. So people are kind of jaded in a way about technology, but they still go to the movies. They don't just rely on what they can do themselves. Um, you know, why is that? What's the magic in this, in this uh, genre? Well, <coughs> well um, I mean, one of, just to follow up on Steve, one of the things that uh, took place and. Um, in the early years was, as Steve mentioned, the narrativization of film, the idea that film could tell stories. And this was not necessarily a natural thing. This, the techniques for putting uh, pieces of footage together, for cross-cutting, for the function of close-up, uh, these things had to be developed. And by the early teens, mid-teens or so, these techniques were in place. So um, our, our, let's say our everyday notion of film that we have today and the way in which it excites us and enthralls us is one that had to be uh, discovered, that had to be developed, techniques had to be developed. So these are the same techniques that are utilized to make uh, YouTube videos, to, to tell stories in other kinds of moving image media. So I think one of the ways in which film let's say the quote-unquote old-fashioned experience of sitting in a th theater before a big screen with uh, a mass of strangers, that one of the reasons why that experience is, is still, has some kind of magic associated with it is, is uh, these techniques live on, you know, they've, they've stayed with us over the years. So, you know, so the, the, the magic experience of movement, which was in those early years, in a certain sense, domesticated and uh, utilized and directed sort of towards certain purposes, um, you know, that magic movement, still, there's still a remnant of that. 
Well, and then, so there are the pictures, but then there's all of the, the other stuff that comes along with it. Most movies have some sort of soundtrack, some sort of, you know, audio element. And, um, and then there's the communal experience of, at least in the old days, sitting in the theater, or now you can sit in your home, either alone or with a group of friends, and watch, watch these films. What difference do you think it makes to um, the experience of the film? Uh, to be either with others or by oneself. I still remember when going to films was fairly unique. You would go, I remember a professor of mine, we would go to movies, my wife and I, and he would often have gone to the program before. And so as we would be going in, he would be coming back and give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> that was a certain kind of unique experience, but you went because the film was showing for a week or two weeks. You went because it was programmed with another film. In part, you would go with the expectation that this was something special that you couldn't have at home. And so it was going out as people in earlier generations would go to the theater or go to music. And even now, the technology keeps reconfiguring. So what you, we talked about is magic, which is really technology and artistry and intent. It stays the same. I'm thinking of the screenings at the Englert Theater, silent movies on DVDs with live accompaniments. And that means that the screening itself is a unique event. And I think even though people tend to watch movies at home more and more, that there is still the sense of a shared experience. It's not, it's not, you know, we used magic in the beginning because people weren't, as you said, jaded or accustomed to the technology, but there's something about the image, and the scale of the image, and the kinds of ways in which this technology can make you see, hear, and feel in ways that can change the movie. Yeah, I mean, the function, one of the functions that scholars speak about in relation to uh, early narrative film is the way in which it trains the senses. It, it trains people how to see and hear in modern life. And it, it gives them a way, uh, we, we think of seeing and hearing as almost natural, you know, phenomenon. It, it just appears to you. But there's a certain way in which cinema was part of a whole range of technologies uh, that, uh, in a way, prepared the individual for experience and how to you know, navigate a city street, for example, or how to uh, deal with others, you know, other strangers. There's a way in which uh, the cinematic narrative um, uh, trains and kind of allowed perception and, uh, and affects and emotions to be, uh, to expect certain experiences in the world. So it's, the, it's inseparable from, from this, this modern experience. What do you think, um, uh, if you think about a, a theater piece that's performed in front of a live audience and every day's performance is unique because you know, it's being done live, um, you compare that to an experience like one Steve just mentioned where the same film is being shown but you have live music being performed and you've got a different audience. Um, what's the difference between those two experiences, theater and film? Well, in the experience of being a spectator, it's a live experience, even though you may see a film that you claim in a very 
everyday sense, you already know you've seen this film. I'd like to think that every time you see a film, it changes, and you change, and you see things that you didn't see before. What we haven't talked about yet in this context of what film can do has to do with the people who make films, the people who conceive the films, the people who actually go and produce them, and they often produce them in a team. It's very difficult to do this all on your own. And so there again, it is the project of using this technology, using an intention that you have, and realizing it, actually making it. For films that we're going to be talking about later in the session today, people go out into communities. They go somewhere else. They go on location. And that's what interests me about getting people into the world through film so that it changes them. Those changes also occur in fiction films. But right now, I'm very interested in films that will take spectators out into the world and change what they know about the world through the experience they have. Another maybe difference between the theatrical live experience and the cinematic one is that um, the cinematic one allows um, a public to be formed of private individuals. Uh, that's to say that, you know, you mentioned these other uh, ways of distributing uh, and uh, watching films um, it, within private context, but we're all in a way watching this product that is the same across different homes, and different, even though just one person is in a home theater 5.1 or something versus a, an old uh, TV. Um, it, 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 it's, it, it forms a kind of public through the uh, reproducibility of the image. Um, and that's different than the, uh, the events, let's say, of a theatrical performance, which involves other uh, unexpected or unforeseen factors as well. What were some of the big, uh, big advances, big um, turning point moments in this last hundred years for, for filmmaking? Certainly. The transition from so-called silent film to so-called sound movies was a major change. I say so-called silent films because the silent film experience included sound elements and complement and in the performative aspects of the film experience. Moving from black and white into color, various kinds of technologies was another major change. For some people, each of these changes signaled the end of cinema or film as we know it. And yet for others, evolving with these new technologies was a new challenge and enriched, broadened the practice. There was also, in the 19, late 1940s and 50s, there was the advent of widescreen, the advent of advanced color techniques. There were experiments with three-dimensional uh, films. There was even smell-o-vision, where people tried to add aroma so you could smell certain kinds. So there were experimentations that were more successful, more felicitous than others. Yeah, yeah and these are technologies, important developments that have helped to uh, immerse the viewer in a total experience. And uh, I think we can all remember when we first saw that great, or had that great experience, whatever um, film it may be, and uh, 
these developments have, have all contributed to um, the, uh, the idea of telling a compelling story. Well, it, you know, everyone who has, even people who haven't seen Jaws, know that that thing, you know, that pops up somewhere in someone's life, you know, that this is, oh, the shark is approaching moment, or the psycho stabbing moment. Um, these are things that are part of, of popular culture, I and mean, they don't need to even explain them anymore because somehow or other they struck a chord. People remembered them, were taken by them, and um, what accounts for that, Steve? Accounts for it. Why does that happen? Why do we remember these things, Steve? Because they become part of a shared sense. We can say public culture, but we can say mass culture. Yeah. There's something that even if we don't know it, we know about it. It becomes a common experience. But I, I think talking about film as part of mass culture is one side. I'm more interested as well in individuals who have the idea that making a film is taking a risk of various kinds. They can be financial risks, they can be time risks, they can be risks involving censorship, depending on the context. And so, in addition to products that we go to see, Hollywood product. So I'm interested in films where individuals put themselves on the line through efforts and where they get involved in the world, whether it's the present or the past, through the projects that they make. There are various ways to talk about this. We can talk about an essay film, we can talk about a political film, we can talk about a film that brings people to understand something that's going on that they would not have known otherwise. And that's a side of film that I think has to be seen alongside big popular blockbuster phenomenon. You go to it the mall. Yeah. yeah, I think the idea of risk is an important one. Um, maybe one reason why those things that you mentioned are so thrilling is because they put the viewer in a place of risk or they experience danger of some sort, whether that be the you know the very famous theme from Jaws or or the uh, the radical montage of of Psycho. I mean, these are Techniques that uh, film artists have deployed, and commercial filmmaking will you know, appropriate them in certain ways and use them to put the viewer in, in a position of risk, and of course bring them back um, to a position of safety. And this experience somehow is seen as a film. Yeah. Well, you both teach uh, film here at the university, and obviously spent your lives uh, immersed in this art. Um, what, Steve, I'll ask you first, uh, what has been the most um, um, meaningful thing that you, you can translate to students as they begin to, to think about film in their classes? If film allows spectators a new way to see and hear and feel and understand the immediacy of experience through this medium, I'd like to think that they can carry that sense of understanding and sensitivity out into their experience in the real world, to look at the details, to understand dialogue, to, to see things in ways that film technology can allow them to see and then go out in the world and do that. That's what I want to give to them. Yeah, yeah I totally agree with that. And also, I think there's the idea of a temporary public sphere that's formed through a shared experience of film. It's also important. It enables 
uh, conversation with strangers that's you know that you don't know and but you know that they've had the same they've seen the same images they've had the same experience and this is you and so that somehow forges uh, camaraderie of some sort of community of some sort even if it's a temporary and some films have, um, it seems to me, really sort of changed perhaps the national mindset or really uh, at least expanded the dialogue. If you think of something like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And um, uh, for those who haven't seen the film, you know, there's a, it's a, there's a white family, prosperous, uh, liberal white family, even a young woman in the family brings home her date uh, with whom she's very serious, and he's a black man and uh, challenges all of the all of the personal um, concerns of, of the parents, and uh, and I, I know that that, that became, uh, I think, a very important uh, point in American culture. When this film came out, certainly there are lots and lots of others. Did either of you want to mention a film that you think uh, said something really important at just the right time that caused uh, a national dialogue, either here or some international film? Well, this happens at various levels. I can think of a film like Philadelphia, which brought out questions that people had wanted to talk about, perhaps didn't talk about. I can think of Thelma and Louise. I'm taking popular films to show how popular films can raise issues in this particular time. Uh, I was thinking of 12 Years a Slave, um, and a film like this, the depiction of slavery is so violent and so Brutal. Um, I think there's a, a kind of timing, um, a readiness of, let's say, American audiences for a film like this. Um, and um, maybe, I, I, you know, I, it's, a, it's a film that raises questions and reflects private ideas, private concerns, and, and makes them public. So it's an important. Well, and then there are films that we know of, um, Lenny Riefenstahl's films that glorify the, uh, the, early, the early period of the Nazis and the you know, incredible outdoor amphitheater events and whatnot. Uh, obviously, film being used there in a propagandistic way and, and um, uh, thrilling audiences and, and uh, the faithful and whatnot. And uh, so, yeah, it's a compelling genre. You expect film to be with us for a long time? I hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think comes next? Um, I would, you know, a film like 12 Years of I would personally like to see more films that raise these kinds of ethical and moral questions and uh, do the, the kind of challenging that uh, the great films have done in the last hundred years. Uh, the challenging of, of ideologies and certain beliefs that we just accept as natural, as um, unthought, and I would like to see films continue to do this. Well, thank you so much, Steve Unger and Steve Cho, for being with us for this first segment. Um, as you know, this is a four-part series on Century of Film, and um, we'll be uh, discussing film with two uh, young professors and also filmmakers here in this next segment as well. I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs. This programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. So for tonight, thank you very much, and please join us next time. 
Hello, and welcome to World Campus from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part two of a four-part series on the century of film in the public sphere. My guests for this program tonight are Julia Hazlett, visiting associate professor and head of film and video production in the University of Iowa Department of Cinema and Comparative Literature. And Julia is right next to me here. Hi, Julia. Hi. Thanks. And Jesse McLean is next to her, and Jesse is an assistant professor also in the Department of Cinema and Comparative Literature here at the University of Iowa. So, Julia and Jesse, we began this series by surveying the evolution of film, kind of development of film as an artistic enterprise, and um, you know, sort of financial and uh, industry effort as well. And um, obviously, this this uh, filmmaking has reinvented itself many times over during these last hundred years or so. You are both filmmakers and also both uh, teach here, uh, teach other young aspiring filmmakers. So. Let me ask each of you to tell us what grabbed you first about film that made you feel that this should be your life's passion or the field you wanted to pursue. I'll start with you, Julia. Okay. Um, I mean, my interest, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and um, my interest in film, I wasn't able to study film in college, um, so I was a But um, I, uh, not long after I left college, was thinking about what was it that I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I was very interested in politics, and I was interested in the visual world. And I had been a painter, I mean, as much as you know, at high school and taking painting classes in college. And so I was interested in something that would combine those two dual interests. And documentary film kind of entered my head. Not that I hadn't seen any films before, but it it sort of merged those two interests. And so I. Um, went to a local community access television station in the town where I was living at the time and started learning how to make videos. And um, so it was that dual interest and then, you know, having been continuing to work in that vein in different capacities ever since. Very cool. That's good to know that, that you know, for anybody who might be watching this program and they're thinking, oh, I blew it. I didn't take film classes in college. You know, I'll never be able to, to do this sort of thing. They actually have other opportunities to learn. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's a difficult road, or it can be. I mean, we've got kind of like, there's a lot of lucrative um, enterprise. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, a, a commitment to the, the subjects, to the people that, that you're documenting, um, to a commitment to making work available and, and communicating, and like Steve, both Steve's up here before we're talking about, um, that engaging with an audience and engaging on significant issues of our time and, and having those opportunities to participate in dialogue. Yeah, yeah. But Jesse, let me go to you and ask you how you got started in sort of Well, um, my story is similar to Julia's in that I didn't study film in undergraduate, I studied art. Um, and I came to film through art. Uh, initially, I wanted to be an animator. And I would consider myself an experimental filmmaker. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. I got interested in filmmaking in college. I took one class because I studied at NYU for a semester, and that's when I really decided that maybe this was something I wanted to do. Um, but I never pictured myself working in Hollywood or in a conventional system. Um, I thought I would be an independent filmmaker. And like Julia, after school, I started taking classes at a media art center in Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from, um, and discovered that I didn't really like making films in that model, even in an independent way. It just wasn't for me. Um, 
but I found a community of people that were interested in cinema, and it's more of a fringe element, I would say, that identifies experimental cinema or avant-garde cinema or just very expanded cinematic forms. And that was where I felt like I developed as an artist because it allowed me to blend a lot of interests. Similar to Julia, I appreciate being able to bring up many interests into the cinematic process and talk about lots of ideas within it. But for me, it's also formal. There's just the abilities of working in really different ways in the material in ways that are very conventional. So help me understand what you mean when you say an experimental filmmaker. That, yeah, that term is uh, a difficult term. And a lot of experimental filmmakers don't like it, actually, because it seems like what they're doing is always a guessing game. But it's just a name that's kind of stuck. There tend to be four classifications of film, narrative, animation, documentary, and experimental. And they're all problematic, and they blend. And we're, most of us, at, all of us in the Department of Cinema and Comparative Literature are into more fluidity between these classifications. Yeah. Uh, but just for the purpose of the discussion, it makes it easier to be able to say, I'm a documentarian, or I work in narrative. So experimental, a lot of times the work is more short form, uh, maybe more materialist, thinking about it more abstract, uh, or combining collages methodologies. I mean, really anything could go, but a lot of times that work finds a home in museums or yeah. places that we experience art versus the single theater. Right, 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 right. Huh. Well, so, so let me come back to this question about Maybe a provocative topic and a filmmaker, a documentarian, perhaps wanting to really um, change hearts and minds and, and open people's eyes to something that they think they may not be seeing. Um, well, I mean, I suppose the biggest, best name that comes to mind would be Michael Moore, right? So, um, someone who's working um, in a kind of performative capacity as a filmmaker using his own background character. Uh, presence on camera to um, investigate and buck break, you know, and, and bring attention to a range of, of controversial topics. Um, and uh, in, in, in his approach, I mean, it's fairly un unapologetic. His politics are quite explicit in, in his methods and in, in, um, transparent. Uh, and so, I mean, he would be one who I would say is very effective at what he's doing, but it's maybe not quite so open in terms of his formal use of the meeting, because it's like, it is more propagandistic, right? Yeah, right. Um, and he has a very clear goal in, in terms of, you know, bringing attention to things, but it, it's not a, um, it's not, well, it's not experimental, but it's not necessarily interested in these larger formal questions that this is referring to. Yeah. Uh, so that would be the most. Tell us about a film you've made. Um, well, the most recent one that I've is a film called Encounter with Simone Bay, which is about a French philosopher and labor activist journalistic in the 1930s in France. Um, but it's also a personal essay film. So it's about her ideas about how we respond to human suffering and how those ideas resonate with current politics in this country and abroad, and also relates to some questions in terms of my own family, family history, and my own relationship with that question of how do we respond to seeing people in pain. Um, and so um, that film uh, is a, it's a sort of feature-length documentary personal essay film. Um, and it's a film that 
raises a lot of diverse questions, and so screening from a lot of different contexts, from film festivals to universities to places of worship, and it really asks people to consider how how they pay attention, how they attend to people in their lives and in larger political issues and what they may or may not be able to do to address them. Yeah, so um, you mentioned that this uh, relates in some very direct way to questions you had in your own life, mm -hmm. family life and so on. Do, do you find that working through the film process helps you come to some better resolution or understanding? Uh -huh. of Certainly in this film it did. Um, I mean this is the most personal, this most personal film that I've made. Um, and so definitely, I mean I was a film that took me six years to make, and so there's a lot for, that happens in six years, and there's a lot of um, working through any, any number of things, whether it be formal elements, formal issues that are um, that you're trying to resolve. I, uh, the film was about a, a, a woman for, for whom I could I could find no moving images of her. So that was sort of part of that journey and trying to respond to some of the formal challenges that I faced. Um, and in terms of, um, I was the editor of the film. I, editing is my favorite part of filmmaking. It was also cheaper than hiring an editor. So um, I was the editor and the director. And so in as much as I was doing a lot of the editing, I was really in there with those decisions in sort of real time and redoing them, rethinking them. And, you know, this sort of process. So that is definitely one that um, I think leads to a deeper understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, it seems to me that um, it would take a lot of um, great powers of release to be the film, be the film's uh, screenwriter and also the director, but then to turn over the editing process to someone else, however trusted that editor is because it is it is so much your baby and then to have someone else make some of those calls on what stays in and what goes out I think would be kind of kind of tough. Yeah, I mean I um I, I worked on that film with a um with a consulting editor. So there was so but it was I was doing the nuts and bolts yeah. and moving them in time to time and review it. I, I have worked with editors in the past and I think it depends on one's relationship to the piece. I mean the more personal, on one hand, you could argue it's better to have some totally objective third party looking at the material if it's a personal piece. But on the other hand, it feels very odd to have someone else mm -hmm. doing that work for you. Um, so, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, the, the role of the editor is a very critical one. And I'm teaching at the class this semester here, and you know, just the, the importance of having someone who wasn't on set, who wasn't committed, or didn't. Suffered sweat over getting a specific shot or a right and having someone who's, who's dispassionately in the editing room and maybe you didn't get the shot, so or that scene doesn't work or it needs to be two minutes and not five minutes or whatever. So, so it's, it's a very important role. Um, and obviously, I think there's a reason why a lot of filmmakers end up working with the same editors year after year because it's very an important and in a, in a relationship that is. You know, it needs to be very much based on trust and sort of shared sensibility. Yeah, do you work with a team, with a whole crew that you have worked with over no. time? No. <laughs> um, but I'm much more open to feedback, and I depend on that. So I need, um, I have a sort of trusted group of friends and peers, and you know, sometimes widen the net to a bigger audience when I'm working on a project, and 
their input is essential because it's so easy to lose your critical distance when you're working on something. And as Julia mentioned, even you, it took you so long to either get that shot or animate that sequence or it was so difficult that day and you really need to use it because everyone was in the freezing rain for 10 hours. So how would they feel if you didn't use the shot? All these kinds of things become very difficult to navigate. So you need, I think most artwork and film, of course, becomes better with the input of other people. Not everyone shares this belief, but I think, I know from my own practice that once I started involving others in the process of evaluating the work, and look, they're not evaluating in terms of it's good or it's bad, but just is this working? Am I getting across what I'm trying to say? Or are people getting confused? Um, and I, I would be lost without that, I think. Or I would get, it would get too solipsistic. I would just become my vision. I mean, there's a lot of ideas that get generated in the creative process, and most of them are not great. So <laughs> you have to find your way through that and the assistance of other people. And then additional voices. You learn a lot through that process. You get ideas that you wouldn't have generated on your own, and that's invaluable. So I don't uh, collaborate with anyone in terms of you're going to do my sound design, you're going to do my edit, but in that way, it's collaborative. And I have collaborated in the beginning of my own career. I was very hesitant to do my own sound design, uh, so I would just sort of say, give it to someone else to score it or whatever. But now I, I can't imagine giving that control away. So yeah. I think it's an interesting exercise because I also think it can be good to um, to not be too controlling and share in that process. And, you know, and be, when you are funding your own projects or something like that, you can want to do every role yourself. So I think it says something when you want to share with another person, allow their input or people. What kinds of things interest you? What are, what are the sorts of things you're thinking about that might turn into a film project? Well, right now I'm thinking about um, the kind of flood of digital information as part of our life and how we deal with it and how it's affecting our mental and interior states, but also our landscape. And uh, thinking a lot about data storage centers and how there's this, they're kind of the physical evidence of something that we don't want to think about because we want to think of the internet as this non-material place that has no presence, but really there's physicality to it. There are energy that's being utilized, a huge amount of energy. And these sites are extremely interesting to me because they're almost like black sites. You're not allowed to know where they are and where they visit them. So yeah, that's an interest to me, thinking about that, the relationship we have to this kind of influx of just ideas and material and how it's changed our behavior. I'm of the age to have experienced life prior to the internet and life fully within it, so I think about that a lot, about what I used to do with my time. I mean, these are very uh, popular themes, but I think they're very relevant. Um, that's something I'm working on right now. So if documentary films are experimental films, it's likely or it's possible that they won't be seen by masses of people unless you might be on uh, maybe picked up at PBS or, or one of the television services that shows slightly more uh, um, specialized films like this. Um, does that bother you? Or, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't at the end of the day say, oh, if I could just do a Hollywood film, you know? No, that yeah. I don't really have to do. No. Um, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the audiences for documentary obviously shift, and I think the internet and the availability of being able to stream digital content, I think, has helped all film, you know, and video uh, have a, a broader audience 
um, which I think is exciting. Um, it's not a collective necessarily experience as much anymore, but it's still an experience of viewing. Um, so, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I feel, you know, if I, I mean, maybe this is a little cliche, but I, I feel if one person, you know, has an insight or has some kind of, or, or moved in some way, I mean, obviously, if it's my mother, maybe that would be a little interesting. <laughs> um, that was the only audience member. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, I, clearly, as much as I'm making films that do engage with larger political and social issues, the point is that the audience exist and that, that it can be built in different ways and creative ways. Um, uh, and so, and I think that there are a lot of possibilities in terms of post-screening dialogues and conversations that, that can go on, especially with documentary work that, um, you know, whether there's, I mean, often, you know, when you have too many people, that's not possible, right? Conversation is most meaningful. And I think if there are more than three people, it's possibly ceases to be meaningful. <laughs> so, um, that being the case. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the, I mean, the, the biggest issue there, obviously, is, is a financial one, right? So the smaller your audience, the less money is at stake. And, and so as the maker, you're having to figure out the ways yeah, to survive. Yeah. Uh, can film, filmmakers who uh, are doing films like yours, are you usually self-funded, or you get grants from the uh, NEA? Um, I mean, I, I mean, there's a certain amount of, yeah, I mean, I've raised fun, funds from uh, philanthropic organizations or foundations yeah. and that sort of thing. Um, there are also, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people who are working in experimental or nonfiction forms yeah. work in universities and, you know, are in relationship to other artists and intellectuals and our teachers, and that helps support with their craft. Um, there's a subset of wealthy people who have money to underwrite their films. Um, so there's kind of a range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said that many of your your films might be more likely to be shown in, say, an art museum or um, some kind of um, creative space than Sycamore Mall. Um, do, do you expect that they would show up on um, a public television service or on a, a you know, I don't know, Bravo or one of these? These kinds of things, or no? I, no, um, I think that maybe, but I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that I mostly make shorts, and there's just not a lot of programming for shorts. I mean, there are. Why is there? Because there are so many good shorts. Sometimes if you go to a festival of short features, they're they're just wonderful. Why is there no good outlet for those that's that is easily reachable by? you know, a big, big audience, even in their own homes. I mean, I think things have changed so much because of the internet, and people can access a lot of work that you could never access before. And also, they're watching things that are short. I mean, even in more conventional means, just television shows that are eight minutes long, three minutes long, I mean, you might, not you, like, if you might grumble about attention span, but this is pretty different, because we were very programmed to, you know, a television show is, 25 minutes long or an hour or a movie is seven minutes to whatever the range is. That has a lot to do with things that are beyond my scope that have to do with probably commercial and marketability. And if you came out and said, I have a 48 minute feature and tried to get a, you know, a distributor, they'd say, well, that's not really going to work. Yeah. It has to be about 60 minutes. I mean, Julia would know a lot about this or a lot more about this than I would because she's actually made a feature. And I think that is a very 
complicated world, but other world of um, just the expectations for a feature and things like that. So, so how, how do you, using the internet, how do you, do, how do people find your films? Find you? Is it just kind of word of mouth? Or is, are there uh, sharing sites where um, you can put your things? Well, I mean, usually with the kinds of films that we're making, they tend to first appear in film festivals, yeah. right? So, so that's more of a theater-based mm -hmm. um, viewing experience. And then, um, depending on the film, um, I mean, my film is just recently now available on iTunes and Amazon and all that, but that was quite recent. It had, a, you know, for about a year or so, it was only available at university libraries in terms of the DVD form, um, and then on television in Europe. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, I, I think what's exciting about the internet and digital technology is a capacity for individual artists to promote and put their work out there and make it available um, and give someone a URL, you know, is, is, is enormously exciting. Um, yeah. So really anyone, any student, you know, can post their, their work. Yeah. yeah. So you're teaching students. What, what are the students you're working with, um, doing with them? What are they most inspired by? What do they talk to you about that they, that they want to make or that they're currently working on? I think most of the students that I encounter initially are very interested in narrative. Um, that seems to be what they've had the most experience with. Uh, because again, even though we have much more access to more expanded forms of documentary or narrative or experimental cinema, it's still not in the mainstream have to see it out. So I think most students tend to show up with an interest in narrative. Um, but because of our program, I think that a lot of them get very interested in documentary which is unusual for undergraduates, at least in my teaching experience. Previous school I taught at, students were not as interested in documentary as they are here. I think that has a lot to do with the aims and the interests of this program. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm finding. I mean, there's a lot of hard ones that want to be made. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. beyond that. Yeah. Yeah, what, what do you find? Um, I mean, I would concur with Jesse that, you know, the majority of um, our undergraduate students, our graduate program students, um, are interested in narrative and in fiction film, um, but there is an openness, and I think that's a testament to the um, nature of the program, where we're filmmakers working alongside film scholars, and so the students are getting a very good training in how to look at and analyze film and getting exposed to a lot of variety of films, um, which I think makes them much smarter makers, so, and, and there's an openness there. There's an openness to different forms and, and to experimenting, which is inspiring. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Julia Hayesmith and Jesse McLean. So happy that you would be here tonight to talk with us about a century of film. Uh, this is part two in a four-part series, and I hope you can join us next week for part three. And uh, World Campus Programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello and welcome to Rogue Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum here on the campus of the University of Iowa. In this four-part series about film, the last hundred years of film, uh, we are uh, discussing 
everything from the evolution of film, the development of film, uh, through various genres, and talking with uh, some film faculty here at the University of Iowa. And in our next segment, we'll be speaking with a filmmaker whose uh, film was shown here on campus uh, last night. So trying to cover a lot of ground and, and understand a little bit about the filmmaking process. In this segment of the program, we have two guests who are graduate students uh, working on their MFAs here at the University of Iowa. And just next to me is Remington Smith. Happy to have you here, Remington. Thanks. You're welcome. And next to him is Jesse Kreitzer. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Joe. So good to have you here. Um, we're going, I'm going to investigate your own working films. I'd like to talk about a couple of the films you've um, given me links to so that I have a little bit better idea of what you do. But um, I did want to sort of start out with asking you how you came to film. Why is film the thing you decided you wanted to get a graduate degree? And then I'll just start with you, Remington. Yeah, um, I actually took a very kind of roundabout way to getting the film. Um, I was actually working on a bachelor's in history. I was going to be a high school history teacher at the University of Louisville. And I was taking a lot of photos at the time. And after um, taking photos of like some zombie fight in my dorm room, it seemed like a natural progression that I would ask some friends to borrow a camera and start making movies. So movie making was always something, it was just another thing to do to get people together. I was always the one trying to get people together to do something crazy or random. And um, so filmmaking was just a communal activity. It was something to, to Remington's gonna come up with an idea. We'll go and check out a main house, or now we're gonna go make a movie. So it was a natural progression. And, um, and so it took several baby steps for me to finally come to the MFA program where um, I started to become interested in film studies potentially um, because a lot of, also at the University of Louisville I was the film chair and we were helping program films at the campus theater. And so that was really nurturing a place that I didn't think I could go to because of worried about uh, economic security, uh, what I'd say. And uh, while I was at the University of Edinburgh, I was able to shoot a documentary as part of the documentary film production class, and that's when I mean, no offense to uh, the film professors, I was like, I'm done, I need to do film production. Um, and so I applied to the MFA in film production. Actually, it was my third time applying to the University of Iowa, and I was glad that uh, I didn't get into the PhD program, and instead I had changed my mind on what I wanted to do with the MFA. So. Yeah, wonderful, great. And so for people watching the show, you might not know the difference between the film studies program and the film production area. So, yeah, so film studies, um, it's, I, I can't uh, give like the best definition, but interacting analysis of cinema and thinking about theory and these types of things. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed that work, but at the same time, it was the direct engagement that film production could have. Um, the ability to potentially reach a wider audience that might be a little bit more accessible. Um, so again, that like sense of community, uh, I felt like film production and making films that would reach a film audience would, would kind of facilitate that work for myself personally. What's your story, Jesse? <laughs> My story? Uh, it's a long one, <laughs> No. Uh, let's see. Well, I, I've always felt this sort of inherent bond to filmmaking, and that I actually have more of an ancestral tie. Um, my grandfather, Abraham Kreitzer, was a photographer for his lifetime. Uh, which was, he was just always an enthusiast. He always had a camera on his head. Uh, and then my uncle, uh, on my um, maternal side, uh, had also taught film production uh, for most of his career. So I've always been pursuing um, the cinematic arts. Um, I was also raised in rural Vermont. Um, my parents 
really chose to raise us there um, in large part because of Marlboro Elementary. I always sort of attribute uh, my tenacity for film to the school um, in large part because they always uh, tended to the students' interests. It wasn't that I knew early on that I had an interest in storytelling and cinema and uh, would always uh, shout out names of actors and films and I was always very attuned to um, especially independent film. I recognized early on um, a, a clear distinction between, say, Hollywood cinema and independent cinema. And I wasn't always able to vocalize what that was, at least when I was younger. Um, but I, I was always drawn to films that sort of operated from the margins. Um, and so at the very least, uh, Marlboro Elementary, from third grade, they put a camera in my hands. And um, yeah, so I was making video reports, video essays on the Fisher Cat or the operations of the uh, cerebral cortex, you know, you name it. But at a young age, I was always using film as a way to tell stories and to educate. Yeah. Well, and you guys are at an age where it's really so wonderful that you had this interest in film as youngsters because the film equipment is so much smaller now, less, less bulky, more maneuverable, I imagine, than some of those very, very early cameras 60, 70 years ago, which would be, I guess, huge much more difficult. So, um, so you came along at the right time to, to get started on that stuff, really? Uh, sure. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> well uh, except for the fact that I'm still an enthusiast uh, for celluloid and um, actually just produced a film. It was a period film set in 1941 uh, based on uh, the story of Alan Lomax, who was a folklorist uh, from the Library of Congress, as was his father. Uh, and, you know, in 1941, he was traveling with this acetate field reporter. Uh, the equipment weighed upwards to 500 pounds. And um, at least uh, my process to recreate this story, I wouldn't have done it digitally on a little camera. So I, I chose to use the antiquated uh, equipment to produce the film. Yes, it's very heavy, but um, the aesthetic, it cannot be duplicated. I'm a bit of a purist, I suppose. and. Uh, that aesthetic um, could really only be captured on film uh, or maybe very expensive high-end digital equipment, but um, there was something much more romantic about producing it on film. So you shared that link with me, and I had a chance to see this beautiful film, Lomax, and I had loved it. It was wonderful, and the audio, everything was beautiful. But what is the aesthetic that you get with cellular, which you can't get or you don't get with those digital Sure, well, you know, I shot black and white, 16 millimeter celluloid, and it's a period film. Um, there's just something, yeah, it's very, they say it's organic, there's an organic quality, there's something, um, there's, it's, there's texture, um, and also, I just seem to have some, some uh, more of a, a bond. I, I react, there's more of this emotional resonance when I watch something on celluloid, whereas there's something so clean and precise about HD video that there's almost the spirit is gone. Um, and that said, I could also look at a digital film and, or, you know, something shot with video. Maybe I can't tell the difference anymore, but um, at least for my own work, I find that there's, there's some subject matter that, um, you know, it's dictated by the content, what, what format if you're shooting film or video. But certainly in the case of Lomax, it would have been a, a real disservice, especially uh, the way that he went about uh, uh, recording in the field to really honor him and uh, use the, the equipment that he would have been using yeah. there. Yeah. And, and you know, at the same time, it's great to have that, that option though, either or, because if, if, uh, 
if it was still like nineteen sixty, um, I probably wouldn't be making movies because I just didn't have the resources, you know. So I literally posted something on Facebook, hey, can I borrow someone's camera? And then ran into a shotgun microphone because I knew I would at least want to get good audio on my first film. Um, and that was how like I got started. So I think you know, even though it's difficult to find an audience and, and somebody who's going to distribute your film, uh, even though there are are these tools that make filmmaking easier, um, I think it's still it, it's it's for the better for sure that we have these things available. And it's nice to know that there are more and more digital cameras that um, can achieve some of the aesthetic of the film in terms of like the latitude. Because again, I was taking a lot of um, celluloid pictures before I got into film production, and, and I can sympathize with that. There is definitely a difference between film and digital and how to achieve the same type of depth and, yeah. and kind of, again, organic yeah. feeling. And people are very, very tied to just certain things that they, uh, Steve, uh, the two Steves in our first segment were talking about sort of expectations um, that, that can be created for, um, for film goers and how you watch and how you listen and so on. And to date myself a little bit, I worked for years and years as a classical music uh, producer on, on a radio station, which just meant that I was a classical music DJ. And when CDs came along and we stopped playing LPs, so this goes back a long time now, but uh, people, many, many people in our audience reacted very negatively to the super clean sound of the CD. They thought it all sounded too, too fake, too sort of not real, and they missed that uh, tangible something that was on an LP. I mean, I was, I was a 35 millimeter projectionist and also did IMAX cellular projectionist, and so when the real strong wave of digital projectors came along, part of me yeah. died a little bit, so I can sympathize <laughs> with that even if I haven't shot on cellular Can I ask you a question about your, your film that you shot in Edinburgh, uh, which mm -hmm. you, know, you shared with me? It was called The Last Good Thing? Or it was what? called The Last Good Thing. Last Good Thing. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, um, so it's minor spoiler alert because I kind of keep it vague, but it was um, a short documentary that I produced. Was, the, the class was broken up into two semesters. The first semester was um, kind of film theory and analysis on documentary filmmaking and, and the ethics of film uh, documentary filmmaking. And then the second semester was trying to put those lessons to use in, in practical terms. And so um, it's a short film about a, Grave digger in Edinburgh and what his work is like and how that intersects with his personal life. And, you know, to go back and watch that film before I had any sort of like professional tech training, a lot of my stuff is just self taught. Um, but when I go back and rewatch it, I think it still works because I had spent so much time with him before shooting and got to got to get him comfortable with me as much as myself comfortable with him. And, you know, after after this interview that's in the film, I think we talked for an hour about what it was like for him to have somebody come and look at his job and want to know what it's like for him to work in this profession, to look past just like some sort of foolish notion. Um, and so I think that speaks to the power of filmmaking, whether it's fiction, Child City or documentary, which is um, this power that we have to represent people, um, to tell stories that we aren't often allowed to hear or know about, and to be careful about that power, uh, both for fiction, because 
I know there was talk about Krakian in a previous piece um, in terms of maybe certain documentaries and such, but you know, fiction films, like when I watched the first Transformers movie, that's a jingoistic film at the end of the day because it's talking about the, the inherent goodness of Americans at the end almost. And like people don't think about these types of politics that are going on in their uh, fiction art, um, but it's something that makers need to be aware of. And so my time at the University of Edinburgh was really important in terms of cultivating that ethical sensibility and trying to seek out narratives for people that aren't usually represented. So a lot of times for documentary subjects, it's trying to pick up stories that we aren't interacting with. And then for fiction projects, it's can we have somebody other than a white male character lead the story? So. Yeah, so what drives your thinking when you're, you're uh, I don't know if you ever have to look for a project or if you've got a book full of, uh, you know, a whole notebook full of potential projects that you'd like to do one day, but, but what is it that sort of trips your imagination? Oh, wow. Uh, a lot of things. I, it's, um, yeah, you never really have a shortage of ideas. I always find it's always about timing. Like, I had been wanting to tell the story of Alan Lomax for many years, but um, it wasn't the right time. Uh, so granted, graduate school gives you the time to uh, focus on your own work rather than having to balance you know, a, a salary day job with independent film practice. Yeah. Um, but it, it uh, and also the reason why I'm here in Iowa is uh, it's an opportunity to explore my ancestral ties to this state. Um, my on my maternal side, my grandmother uh, was from Albia, Iowa. Um, my great grandfather. Uh, was the state mining inspector for Iowa. And there are a lot of stories here in this state. And so right now, the time is right for me to explore these stories. And so um, I plan to produce, it's actually another period film, fictional uh, film, loosely inspired by my family or their history uh, in Iowa uh, as coal miners. Um, and right now I'm focusing on a work uh, based around an image that was taken in 2009 of the spreading of my grandmother's ashes from Iowa. Uh, she had requested um, to go home and uh, my uncle, her son, had interpreted that as she wanted to go to Iowa. And so they went to the um, Historical Society of Des Moines. They had tracked down the coordinates of her home in Maple, Iowa, which is a ghost town now when the coal mines dried up. Uh, so did the town. Um, and so they spread her ashes. Uh, and there, the ceremony was documented on 35mm film, so that's, there's something there that's worth exploring. Um, and when they developed the film, uh, there was this green milkish orb, uh, an apparition of sorts, coming out of the urn. And it's undeniable. I mean, there's an energy in this photo. And, uh, you know, it makes skeptics believers <laughs> in some ways. So I'm very interested in using this as a story, uh, or I should say, in some way of grounding uh, an exploration into my ancestral ties here in Iowa. So it kind of comes to you when it's the right time, you know, and, uh, and, and move. That's exciting. But yeah. well, you are working, are, are working on uh, a piece beneath these trees, which mm -hmm. is actually shot near your hometown, is it, Louisville? Yeah, um, so last semester I produced a short film called Beneath These Trees, which I've now expanded to become my thesis film. Um, it has yet to be titled. Um, but it's about uh, a neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky, where there's heavy industrial manufacturing right next to people's homes. And 
it's just the exploration of these spaces. You, you, you hear about uh, Robertown in terms of higher rates of cancer that people live there, higher rates of respiratory illness, um, leukemia in children, and it just, and it's like one thing for you to hear about it on the news, but what I was interested in was to actually go to some of these locations and show people what it's like. And so in that process, what's been most interesting is no matter where I go, if I'm at a park that's right next to um, some sort of uh, gas refinery, or if I'm on a super fun site where there is toxic dumping in the middle of the woods, there's always someone there that I'm interacting with, like showing that these hazardous uh, facilities are right next to people's homes. And I've been fortunate enough when I go into these uh, spaces, these people are willing to speak to me. Um, and you know, kind of the thread that's carrying throughout is this one woman who lives uh, near the, this uh, neighborhood. She's moving her entire house to another county because it's cheaper for her to do that than to try and sell her home there. Because your home value, of course, is depreciated because of these facilities and whatnot. Um, if you can sell it, even at like 50%. So um, everything's shot except for this moving the house segment. Um, so that's what I'm waiting on. But I think it, it speaks to again, trying to show people things that they like hear about, but in this first person mode, like, oh, this is what it looks like. Because as I've been doing this film, I realized like highways are a great way to keep people cut off from other communities. You don't even have to look at uh, poverty. You don't have to look at how the other half lives. Um, the way that city planners keep people separate uh, in terms of, like in Louisville, like, the, the east side is known as more affluent, and then the west side is uh, around with like uh, African American and known for poverty. And where I grew up in the south side was, uh, I feel like that's where the real melting pot is, is poverty in the United States. Like that's where you're gonna see the greatest diversity. Um, but there are parts of Robertown that I had not been to, and to force people to actually interact with these spaces. Like it's not just, oh, the west side. It's, no, I have something tangible that I can experience, even though I've never driven there. Um, so it's been it's been a very enriching experience in contrast to fiction work, where with this the documentary work, it's usually myself and a camera, and just wanting to interact with people. And then fiction projects maybe a little bit more controlled um, and working with a large group. So I guess it offers different um, experiences. I think both of you are involved in. Um, uh, I don't know what call them, community projects in schools, and, and you are connected, are you not, with the downtown theater? I am. I'm the director of yeah. the Asian Film Board. Yeah, yeah no, that's terrific. And um, so that allows you to obviously enjoy films that others have made and, and book films which I think people ought to see. Um, is, is there any sort of uh, primary theme in your mind when you're, you know, when you're thinking about a film that you think you might want to book? Obviously, mm -hmm. it could be, a, I suppose, virtually any sort of genre. What is it that makes you want to see that film? Yeah. Oh, well, I have a, um, a big enthusiast for rural storytelling, and so usually any film uh, shot in the countryside, I usually tune in. But um, I will say we're about to implement uh, a bi-weekly uh, campus programming series, and so basically tapping into the wealth of the university departments, uh, faculty, student orgs, um, and finding films hand-picked uh, that we'd screen, but then also be able to host a, a discussion around um, the film and um, issues that might relate to life on campus. Or yeah, yeah. Well, I, 
I think it's great that you're interested in rural films because you know, we very often hear about people who are really inspired by city stories, but what is it about the rural story that attracts you? Uh, simplicity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a way of life uh, that maybe has been paved over by modernity, um, ancient customs and traditions. Um, so there's something exciting there, and there's also a sort of mystical element to the country, perhaps because I was raised there, you know, um, and maybe that longing, you know, having lived uh, over a decade in Boston and now even, say, Iowa City, I regard uh, it's urban, you know, and so. Um, I've always been very inspired by the natural landscape and uh, certainly feel most at peace there. And so uh, my stories seem to reflect that. Yeah. yeah. When did you graduate? Uh, May 2015, a year and a half left. And um, I plan to produce the fictional coal mining film uh, in September of this year. Wonderful. Great, great. So you shoot it in, in September and then you. you Correct. Have... Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. yes, and then we'll have that. Uh, right. Uh, great. And how about you? Did you graduate soon? Graduate May of 2014. Wow. So what comes next after that? Um, so hopefully I'm able to document um, this main character, Monica, moving her house at some point, whether it's before graduation or stick with it after and then submit that to festivals. Um, I'm also working on a Kentucky Derby documentary exploring some of the similar themes. I've shot some material already, but um, I've lived uh, just down the street from Churchill Downs for three years, and uh, so it's the issues of like poverty and race are very apparent around Churchill Downs, and I'm interested in exploring that space. And um, I just shot a fiction film a couple weeks ago that I'm editing right now as well. So yeah. there's a lot of stuff on there. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, well, really nice to see the next generation of filmmakers. <laughs> I hope we'll be seeing a lot of your work in future years. So Jesse Price or Brendan Smith. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks. Best of luck with everything. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, so this is part three of this World Canvas series on the century of film in the public sphere. And our guests have been just Kreitzer and Remington Smith. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for watching us. You can find all of this programming on the UI channel on YouTube, also on iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Gare, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Gare. We're here in the center chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. Very happy to have you with us, whether you're here in the audience, in the uh, live location, or watching on uh, television. Uh, my guests tonight are award-winning filmmaker Steve Mang, two faculty members of the University of Iowa, Lisa Weaver and Professor Wen Fong Tong. Our topic for this four-part series is a century of film in the public sphere, and this is the fourth and final episode, so I'm glad you can be with us. Just next to me is Steve Mang, who is a New York-based filmmaker and artist, a fellow of the Sundance Institute's Documentary Film Program, and a grant recipient of the MacArthur Foundation, New York State Council on the Arts, and the Independent Television Service. High-tech, low-life, filmed in China, Taiwan, Romania, and Germany, has won numerous awards, including Best Documentary at the Independent Film Festival of Boston and the Little Rock Film Festival, and Best Cinematography at the Woods Hole Film Festival. And most recently, Steve Mang was awarded a 2013 Grierson Award, one of the UK's highest documentary honors in the category Best Newcomer Documentary. And so, Steve Mang, real pleasure to have you here with us. Thanks. Thanks,
Uh, many have seen Steve Mays from High Tech Low Life that had a showing here on the campus of the University of Iowa and was also on public television here uh, recently. Uh, Lisa Weaver is a former China-based CNN reporter and she currently teaches in the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. Great to have you, Lisa. And Professor Wen Fang Kang is on the end. He teaches in the University of Iowa for Political Science. Very good to have you here, Wen Fang. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm very excited to have the three of you here uh, in this part of the discussion. As you know, throughout the series, we've been talking about this last century of film and filmmaking. Um, been looking at ways making films has changed, watching films has changed, and reflecting a little bit on the cultural impact of storytelling through film. Uh, in this segment, we're trying to get at something which is, is, is uh, revolves around challenging the status quo and um, kind of looking at the way people are, are taking in um, films of one sort or another through an era when we can uh, have two-minute films shown through social media, we can share links, we can um, see all kinds of things uh, kind of in underground ways, and then also uh, very, uh, you know, uh, popular films that, that draw an audience and create uh, common discussion. High Tech Low Life, this film that Steve Mang recently did, um, I mentioned has been shown here on the University campus and had a good crowd and a, a spirited discussion afterward. And um, I'd like to start first with you, first ask you to tell us a little bit about who you are, where you came from, and then why this film uh, is, is the film you, you made over a five year period of your life. Uh, um, so, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. So, you went to film school or you just learned how to make films on your own? Uh, well, I, I started out uh, in an engineering program that uh, was, I guess, interested in, uh, you know, I liked problem solving and the design and stuff like that. And uh, I was always thinking about storytelling, and it's like a lot of people in this room. It sort of naturally or clumsily led to, to filmmaking. And, um, you know, I found that, you know, it not only had uh, sort of a design aspect and uh, exciting, Problems to solve, but uh, there was also a narrative element, and you could mix uh, a lot of different kinds of uh, questions and uh, you know, uh, challenges into one project, and then ask a whole other set of questions uh, on your next project, and that was really an exciting idea. Well, in the storytelling, um, I, I only have this one film to to refer to in terms of the work you've done, but the high tech, low life. I'd love to have you just give us a sketch of what this uh, film is about, but uh, from my perspective, it's, it's very uh, humane. There's a, there's a real sort of, um, there's a very personal touch, I think, to uh, what you present to an audience, and, and I love that about it. And um, I know that even within engineering, which we might think of as just, you know, people working on paper and what I know engineers are also passionate about what happens in life and what their, what their uh, products do to people in the end. But filmmaking is something very different. You can put your heart into it in a way that other people can actually see. Yeah, well, I mean, I was a crappy engineer, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't working out. <laughs> Great. Uh, so that sort of uh, you know, solved, solved itself. <laughs> but, um, well, so tell us about this story. Yeah, the story was just, I mean, in, in a way, it's like a, a bit mundane. It was just a personal curiosity. I had born out of reading an article and then just doing some very light, unguided, unfocused research around it. And, and you know, there the, 
so many reasons why we just sort of fall down a Google rabbit hole. And so yeah. um, this particular one led me to um, Zola, the main character, uh, who would be the main character website. Um, just sort of confluence of like the article that had initially sparked my interest uh, about this eminent domain case in the city of Chongqing. And then seeing this really high contrast as far as um, who he was and how he was portraying himself on his personal website um, was just, you know, interesting, intriguing to me. And it, it, it really sparked my imagination as far as like, this great amount of possibility in, uh, in this young guy and at the same time, you know, pretty meaningful stakes that he was taking on. Um, you know, those, that, that in itself is uh, a great kind of foundation to then um, tell a story. And so, uh, you know, he was really excited by the idea when I, we just started chatting through email about uh, sharing the story with the filmmaker. It just developed from there. Yeah. And so, um, for people who haven't seen the film, the, there are two central characters, and both are bloggers in China. Um, uh, Zola, who was just mentioned, there's a younger man who really seems to be ambitious in terms of making something of himself, becoming known, becoming maybe sort of a celebrity. And uh, the other fellow is somewhat older um, and uh, also a blogger, travels all over China, usually on his bike, and, uh, or at least in the film, we see him on his bike going great distances. And, uh, and he seems to be very anxious to. Uh, to bring uh, things that perhaps the government doesn't want people to see um, debated in public to, to some you know, larger audience. Uh, I, I think Steve is a little bit underselling how rich the film is. You're right, there are two main characters. You're only talking about one of them. Sure. That, I, I thought that was very interesting. You were really portraying two completely different types of bloggers, two different types of people who use social media. Um, one is this kind of a younger person from rural China selling vegetables on the market, uh, but trying to make it himself, and totally self-centered, would do anything to stir up some kind of social movement. Then you have the older person, blogger, who's uh, feeling a lot of social responsibility. He's, he, I, I, I kind of like the older character a lot better because it's more complicated. He had both sides. He sometimes challenged the regime, but oftentimes uh, he tried to fill, fill in the gaps by the, what the government neglects or the social groups of people who are neglected in Chinese society. He uh, works very hard to, to meet their needs. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly, it's on the surface about uh, these two bloggers from different generations and uh, who are taking upon themselves the use of social media and sort of like web 1.0 um, output, um, challenging the status quo by uh, reporting on censored news stories. Um, but what really interested me was not that it was about, you know, I, I wasn't particularly um, interested or, or researching blogging on the media, sort of social media activism, but it, that there were these sort of associated meanings to their stories and that in the juxtaposition, one exciting thing to discover uh, in 
in production or in the filming and editing was that you know there's also this kind of like generational change of the guards happening and that um, there is this kind of conflict with um, this youthful generation trying to reconcile this Maoist past that they maybe didn't quite understand but you know with an individual like Zola was um, you know kind of instinctively reactively pushing back against anything paternalistic whether that's his parents or the Chinese government the censors his local police and then even as in the moment, in the scene of the film when the two meets, even in Tiger, you know, debating this idea of like collectivism and uh, individuality and the importance of individualism as far as, in his words, you know, dis dispelling the, the communist mindset within people. And then that being, a, by being selfish, by being self-indulgent, that, that you might in some way break down this this communist kind of Marxist encoding that he's, you know, without his choice had inherited. And so, you know, it was exciting to me to just learn about Zola's story, but then see that story activated in an entirely different way when we injected another character's narrative into that. Well, and it's interesting to hear you say that you didn't really start out looking at this as a story where you could talk about bloggers and social media, because really, we we learned so much about the kind of immediate response they uh, got to postings. Uh, you know, you see Zola at one point sitting in front of the computer saying, oh, look at how many responses there are here. And and obviously, this other fellow, Tiger Temple, says that he, he receives requests from people who are feeling um, you know, lost, nobody to turn to who tell their story. Uh, his requests come to him, and in some cases he moves on. Um, in terms of what you know about citizen journalism in China, um, Lisa, um, how, how closely would it relate to what we saw in the film? Very closely. Yeah. Very closely. The uh, topics that people were protesting about, which you know, include forced relocation or having to leave their homes because there's no Really land ownership in the sense that we have in this country. What I used to call when I lived there sort of bread and butter issues, mostly not calling for, you know, bringing down the Communist Party or articulating, you know, sort of political opposition for the most part, just, you know, sort of lively uh, life, uh, life issues. In the time that I lived there, these groups would often call foreign journalists if they were doing, you know, protesting something they knew the Chinese, for the most part, journalists, wouldn't go. And so that was the way that foreign-based media, and I appreciated the scenes in the movie with the French journalists trying to get the shot of, of Zola in the, in the alleyway. Um, we learned about a lot of protests through the groups that would call us, and you know, I suppose also blog. I think the social media really kicked into high gear after after I left and I stay in touch with some of the people at CNN uh, now, and one friend of mine, a producer who's been there for years, says he, he checks the microblogs frequently. He, he has to stay on top of a lot of social media just, just to see what is being discussed because you know there are so many uh, um, tips to stories. There are also times that the mainstream news media in China does pay attention for you know, usually brief periods of time on issues that are sensitive until they're told to back off. But then when they are told to back off, the citizen journalists keep going. You, uh, 
had a thought when on the Richard's Rice uh, after the film screen, uh, it's a question to Steve about why he, he didn't follow this one particular um, incident to what might be seen as more of a conclusion. And, and Steve's explanation was that that really wasn't what you were most interested in in terms of the film. You were interested in two characters not necessarily following one um, incident to a, a different kind of conclusion. But why would that have been important? Well, it, it shows one of the two most important roles of uh, social media, actually. Uh, the part that I wish the movie covered a little more is this huge protest uh, stirred up by the younger persons blogging about this uh, uh, girl who was drowned and, uh, and she was allegedly raped. Um, but so th there's no real answer to, to that question whether she was raped or not. But uh, however, there was a, a protest that uh, gathered over 100,000 people. So that, that really shows how much the internet can do. Um, I think that's related to. Um, um, I, I'm thinking about these two different functions social media can play. One that in an authoritarian society like China, which uh, is described by a political scientists a long time ago as a, a society with a, a strong thumb but weak fingers, meaning the government is really strong, but when it comes to uh, specific policies, many of these policies are uh, neglected and not well implemented. Right? So social media can either challenge the thought, right? or it can strengthen the fingers. I, I think in, in the case of the younger blogger, uh, he's clearly trying to challenge the thought, right? to cut the thought. Right? But for the older blogger, I think he sometimes touches the thumb, and most of the time he's trying to strengthen fingers. Um, so I think these are two different types of uh, people, and they're, they're serving two different functions social media. Well, Steve, I was wondering about the, um, the fact that, uh, you know, the viewer of the film has to sort of stop and remember that you're there shooting what we're seeing. You know, you, that's, the, that's a wonderful thing that happens with films. Very often you forget that there's this whole film crew or an individual person with the camera there. It's just it's you there. Well, you were shooting these, these moments when, for example, the younger guy was um, afraid that he was being tailed, something was going to uh, prevent him from going forward. And then also, at a moment in the film, when with the older blogger, um, he was being detained by the police and whatnot. So you were there shooting these things. How, how much did that influence, do you think, anything that happened? Uh, not much did it influence. I think your, your presence entirely influenced it. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's unfortunate because uh, we're, we're making so many kind of like micro decisions along the way uh, and trying to consider um, and, and maintain lots of options as far as the material we're collecting and to not tamp it down. And, and that's the biggest struggle that the presence of the filmmaker is altering the yeah, reality entirely. And was the scene, the detention scene, shot with a hidden camera? That, that actually, was, I was not the shooter of it. Oh. So that was material that. Tiger uh, had a friend who had shown up and had, and she had a camera in her bag. 
Ah, okay. So they didn't, the police didn't know that anybody was filming that. I think they were aware at the same time because she, she in, in the entirety of that material, uh, becomes a little bit bolder mm. about that. But um, she, uh, this woman, Ming Shu, who uh, is a filmmaker in her own right, um, had just luckily happened to have her camera at the time the Tiger had sent out some texts that the police were looking that they, or they had come and taken away. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things that um, happen in the film that you can't always um, include. One, of, one, one part of his story was that, you know, he ran around at times with and collaborated with a team of activists and, and other bloggers. It's very casual. He didn't even like to call it a team, but um, that was something that, um, you know, we weren't fully allowed to show. And so, you know, a lot of the efforts that they do, they, they don't want to make seem like organized activism. Yeah. And so, um, so we had to sort of omit and not tell a complete story. And that's, you know, that when you talk about sort of like the omission of material and information, you know, it's, it comes down to the needs of the narrative and, and, and having to make these hard decisions about what the most functional narrative is, but one that isn't going to result in in, in sort of a, you know, discourse or dissertation, but inspires more questions and, and more discussion. And so, uh, I know the movie is about censorship, um, and, but um, I just want to bring another point that I thought was very interesting in the movie, that's the contrast between censorship, that's the ongoing thing in the movie, and this guy uh, in Beijing on the street cursing the government. Right? And, and, and the young, young blogger coming from rural China was shocked, saying, wow, people are so open in Beijing. They can openly criticize the government. And I thought it was a very interesting contrast. If you don't show that part, people would think that China is the same 30 years ago, but under Mao, you know, China has gone a long way in terms of freedom of speech, even with this Censorship, and that also reminds me another um, recent, very recent study done by uh, Harvard political scientist Gary Keating. Yeah, uh, he and his co-authors studied Chinese uh, internet um, discussion, online discussion. They found that as long as you don't advocate collective action and people are left alone, people can be highly critical. So uh, there's a different layer of this uh, censorship, I think, in China. Um, I, I thought the movie yeah, would probably reflect some of that. I mean, there's such an entirely complicated and important conversation to have about censorship. You know, there's, there's a, a much sort of debated idea that the government is actually in total control of all of the messaging that comes out, that it, the social media is this, this entirely convenient tool to sort of get a gauge on sort of public sentiment, but then also to use as this pressure valve, and that the line is intentionally blurred and gray, and, and, and just constantly shifting because the government knows that um, to maintain control and authority, and there should at times be allowed uh, moments of vent, to, you know, where people are allowed to vent, and at the same time, convenient things can happen. So some corrupt local politician in a distant province can be outed for whatever, you know, malfeasance through social media. And, and that's something the central government wouldn't necessarily have a problem with, you know. Um, 
But at the same time, they have to be careful because if they can mobilize, they're also very, as I've come to very sensitive to anything that would mobilize people to connect the dots. If it's an individual voice, extremism, here and there, that's one thing, but if everyone gets on the same page and organizes a protest using social media, that's what people right. worry about. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of um, Rebecca McKinnon, but she, oh, yeah. Yeah, um, she had given uh, Zola some advice at one point, you know, um, that of course there's like the three T's in the FTN and Tibet and Taiwan and then Falun Gong. Like, you know, be careful when you discuss those, and, and most Chinese obviously understand that. But then the most important thing is, yeah, don't be, be cautious of, of mobilizing, you know, collective action accidentally in your writing. In terms of collective action, the internet can go both ways. It can mobilize people to organize people, make people more politically active, give people information, and challenge the government, supervise the government, and, and, and uh, promote civil society, right? But it also can go the other way by stirring up mob mentality. And in Chinese, they call that human flash searching that uh, in several cases, uh, netizens, uh, internet uh, users, try to expose people's uh, privacy, uh, those people who disagree with, right? Uh, one good example is the huge Chinese student who was advocating more balanced discussion with Tibet, and her family in China was uh, mocked. Uh, they found out where she lived, and her mother was harassed. So that kind of uh, role the internet can also play in China. If you don't have a good uh, uh, legal procedure, you know, well-established institutions uh, uh, in civil society, so that can cause a lot of damage yeah. to society. Wow. Well, we're coming to the end of the segment, but I, I wanted to just take a minute and tell you, I got the cinematography of filming this film. It's just so beautiful. So many of the scenes, particularly I thought the rural scenes and, and uh, the nighttime shot inside the family home, all of them, you know, very, very little light, but incredibly um, you know, striking images that will stay with me for a long, long time. Not, not the pollution stuff. The pollution wasn't as pretty, perhaps, but um, nonetheless, <laughs> it was really a wonderful shot. And uh, what are you most proud of? Uh, I, you know, actually, I look back and I, I beat myself up over a lot of those issues. So, you know, yeah. And it's this process of discovery. So I mean, that's that's a complicated question. Sure. Because yeah. I, you know, I look back and I see all the things I would like to, you know, explore differently. But you know, it's for another film. But I'm most proud of just getting to know those guys. I mean, that was an incredibly rare opportunity to tell them. You know, you don't get, the, the camera's one thing, it's disarming, it makes people talk, it, they share things with you that you would have never realized, um, and, or maybe arrived at in, in regular interactions. But then, you know, you compound that with two people who have that kind of idea of like agency, and that they're these go-getters that want to go and, and, and expose things in the world, and it was electric. I mean, situation after situation astounded me, and, and made me totally depressed. And, feel helpless and power, powerless for them, for their, their subjects. And so, I mean, it was like, literally the most profound and upsetting and exciting experience. And 
you know, so you look back at the film, it's an 80 minute, 90 minute documentary, it does no justice to what you saw. Yeah. And that tears you up a little bit, but you know, you just go keep trying. Uh, I am so grateful to you for um, spending this time with us and to you, Lisa Weaver, and to you, Wen Fang Tang. So, this is Steve Mang. And I want to say thank you also to the Department of um, Cinema and Comparative Literature for putting together a series with them surrounding um, Steve's visit. So, it's been really exciting for me. Thank you very much. And this is the fourth part of our four part series. You can find all of it on uh, YouTube channel, also on International Programs website international.uiowa.edu and uh, on iTunes and also on the Public Radio Exchange. Um, thank you for being with us tonight and I hope you can join us next time when our topic is Child Protection with Global Responsibility. For UI International Programs, I'm Joan Karen. See you next time. Good night.